Hello everyone and welcome back to season three of Sully's Open Conversation, the show that aims to have an unfamiliar conversation in a familiar environment. For our first episode of season three, we are joined here with Helena. Hey, you alright? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm really good. <laughs> so we've actually known each other for quite a while. Around 10 years now. Yeah. It feels like a long time. Slightly it's strange, crazy, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think, well, we kind of knew each other in like year eight, year yeah. nine, kind of yeah. around we that time. We both had similar we? social circles yeah. in school. And, and then I think it was in summer, just gone. Yeah. I was happened to be playing golf at the golf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got into a conversation and then obviously he was talking about all my experiences and yeah. then and then he he kind of mentioned about some of the yep. experiences that you've been through. Yep. And then he mentioned your name and I was like, Hold on. Yeah, I know this girl. <laughs> yeah. I think we'd yeah. actually spoken on Instagram yeah, like we did very day, recently yeah. before that as well. Um so yeah, Helena, I'll let you introduce yeah. yourself. So my name's Helena. Um I'm a bodybuilder, might as well just put that out there. Um, and I've also got borderline personality disorder, diagnosed officially 2016, but had it all my life. So, yeah. That's you. Not too bad. Um, and what is one positive thing that you have heard, seen or done recently? So it, it's something that I live by every day. Um, no matter what kind of a day I'm having, I try and look for at least one good thing in every day. Um, and people try and think it has to be like a really important thing simply getting out of bed no matter what the time can be a good thing eating healthily can be a good thing making someone smile can be a good thing so practicing gratitude basically it's lovely it's lovely yeah. and it and it kind of it makes you present as well yeah. doesn't it it doesn't yeah. it doesn't and you're not hard on yourself for oh i didn't do yeah. this today i didn't do that not today. dwelling on negatives exactly yeah. and, you, and then you can appreciate what you've achieved exactly yep and <laughs> i had a massive problem with doing that yes. for a lot of <laughs> so did i not just you <laughs> yeah. we all do to be fair we don't give each, we don't give ourselves enough credit exactly especially exactly. when we've gone through things that we've gone through and you think why me constantly and I could do better and it's like you're doing the best you can with what you've got and I that's that. all that matters that's that. all that matters I love that um so for those that don't know you and however much you want to kind of say mm -hmm. um would you mind going through your experiences and, yeah. and what you've been so through? I had a normal childhood everything fine you know both parents on single uh, single child on my own um and then come 2012 mum took me aside and said look I want to leave your dad so that was stage one then my only grandparent passed away. Then I went through a personal situation. I, I got attacked when I was 14. And then a few months after that, moved out of the house I lived in all my life. Now, it was after my attack that the school were made aware and the school noticed that massive things were happening with my mood, personality, just the way I was carrying myself. So then we went to the doctors, got denied by CAMS, went back to the doctors, tried again for CAMS, got denied. And then I ended up taking an overdose and, and cutting myself for the first time, like that my parents knew of me actually self-harming. And that's sort of what started me getting into, I finally was accepted to CAMS. And that's where we opened up this hole of mental health and, oh, there's actually something wrong with you. If originally diagnosed anxiety, depression, tried to get on antidepressants at 14, 15. I didn't like them. The way they were making me feel was that I wasn't in control. I felt heavily sedated to the point that I literally couldn't do anything and I was like this is not okay so I chose not to take them um, 
undercams, went through sort of counselling therapy, trying to figure things out. Eventually also diagnosed PTSD subsequent mm. from my attack. And then that's when the ball started rolling in terms of, right, we need to get you onto therapy. Now, during this time, I'd stopped going to school. So school, because it was an atypical, like, you know, 9 till 3 p.m. sort of thing, I was in insomniac at this point. <clears throat> Couldn't sleep because of the nightmares. I had quite bad night terrors. I would actually have to stay at my mum's and she'd stay up with me all night. Like, it was too much. Mm. So then what happened was is it came to a point where I had to get better help. So we were, I think I was, it was about a year and a half into the journey at this point. Um, I then ended up going private. So we luckily had health insurance, went private, saw a doctor there, and he said there's something more than just PTSD and depression here. Like the things that you're showing aren't just depression because mm -hmm. once I'd sort of calmed down after the, the really traumatic year, I had then become in this little world of I was depressed, but I was also able to fake being happy in public. Yeah, yeah. I was also having happy moments at times, but I was having these absolute crazy highs and then absolute Slums, lows. And I would have depression for, say, 90% of the time. But then those that 10% of the time that I wasn't depressed, I would be so out there and, and it was manic that there was something more. So then we went to the Priory, did several tests and then this would be about four years later at this point, um, then got the diagnosis of borderline. Now, even at the Priory, borderline was like not really spoken about. It was an unheard of thing. It was mainly called uh, emotionally unstable. unstable and I yeah. didn't like that term <laughs> And I was like, I might be emotionally unstable, but let's stick with borderline, I prefer that. Um, less of a smack in the face. <laughs> so we don't want to go around and say, hi, I'm emotionally uh, unstable. <laughs> borderline sounds better um so what happened was is then did our own research into it and then sort of things came out that it was so like unspoken of like i'd never heard of it my parents never heard of it friends and family hadn't heard of it and i was just like so where do i go with this so did whatever we could find online and there was very little but there was a little bit about how it's not just brain chemistry it's how your brain was formed from early stages of life yeah. so we thought about certain things of uh, characteristics of me as a child. And when we looked at how I was as a child versus how I was as an adult, there were things that had stayed exactly the same. For instance, memory, sensitivity, a sensory overload in terms of noise, space, sound, um, even touch and things like that, yeah, so, which, yeah, is, yeah. which was almost a bit like an autistic tendency as mm -hmm. well. Um, and from that is when we started to realise this has been something I've had my entire life. Wow. And evidently it didn't break and become a problem until I had the traumatic year, mm -hmm. which when you're yeah. going through hormonal changes as well as a teenager, it's evident that something's going to go wrong. Um, then you throw in the mix of alcohol, drugs, uh, suicidal tendencies and self-harming and, and you get this very dangerous, toxic mix of... I'm doing X, Y, and Z behind closed doors, yeah. but to your face, I look perfectly normal and innocent. It's masking, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. So um, went through a lot with myself uh, and with like psychiatrists. I had psychiatry quite a lot, and and that taught me that I have to give everyone a chance because <laughs> I didn't like some of what they were saying. And then there was one doctor that massively listened to what I said and 
he was really the one that made me realise that I can accept who I am. And Massively change your perception, yeah. can't it? And he was so nice because he was very blunt, but he was very much like what a counsellor or a therapist should, in my opinion, should have done from the get-go and realised, made me realise, sorry, that you need to separate your feelings from the actions and from what's actually going on. Like, you're feeling how you're feeling, you are completely valid in that feeling, mm -hmm. but you need to think about the rationality of what you're feeling yeah 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 you know as i think it's it, it's so easy and 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 that's kind of what i've had to start to really um identify notice understand yeah. is that i have to be wary of my feelings i have to be aware of them i have to un like be able to understand them and fe actually yeah. feel them because yes, growing can't. up i mm -hmm. just kind of try to avoid it yeah you can't suppress them yeah especially like when and i've i've the way i describe it to people is that you know your feelings are here and my feelings are out here. Now, that's not to say that my feelings are more important, but it's that if you were to look at, well, for instance, when, when studies started to come out and more information was coming out, the one thing that I kept seeing repeatedly over and over <clears throat> is that a borderline in um, not just an episode, but in general, has the same emotional skin as a third degree burn victim. Wow. And that came up years ago and I've seen that since. And the point that they're trying to say is that the emotional skin, if you put emotions into a bubble, the emotional skin of a person with borderline is that sensitive wow. that you you do feel more than others. I've realised from early on, like I was, I was 18, 19, crying in the middle of a high street sometimes because I was having an episode or because I'd been, say, like I'd been pushed around by loads of people walking past me and I felt beaten up almost. And for a second, I'd feel so, th not just threatened, but so uneasy mm -hmm. that I would have a breakdown. But this is before I'd worked on myself, so now I wouldn't do that. But in my worst period of time, it's like I'm 18, 19, crying in the middle of public. For what reason? I think it's especially, especially with the kind of emotional overload as yep. well. It's like it's, exactly it's not it. understanding. Yep. And a lot of people look at them and think you're a grown adult crying, and it's it's not that she's overwhelmed or she's upset. And that's when I had to, I, I really had to hit the nail on the head of like, I don't care what people think of me anymore yeah, it's so because important. I've got to live my life however I've got to live it. But also, it's about education. And luckily, I would say in, in the 10 years I've been diagnosed with mental health, it has improved as well as come backwards in some sense. But a lot of it has improved, especially since lockdown, mm -hmm. of people understanding. And I'm sure you'd see this with men's mental health as well. But accepting that people feel a certain way, regardless of what's happened or what you try and do for them, you can't change that. Mm. You can help them, but you can't physically turn that switch off in their yeah. head. You know, it's up to that person, but also it's up to where they are in their recovery. Definitely. You know, definitely. little did I know I was going to get put in recovery and that was absolutely crazy. So I got diagnosed mid 2016 and I was actually put into recovery. I think it was about summer 2018. Wow. And that was uh, a year and a half of, of going to the gym. But I, I remember saying to that doctor and it was the same doctor that taught me about acceptance of myself. I said to him, how am I in recovery? I said, I didn't know you could get into recovery. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's impossible. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not, it's not cancer. I'm not in remission. Like, this stuff is still in my head. And he said, yeah, but the point is you're recognising your your. You're aware ups. of it. You're aware yeah. of, you're, you're, so, you're so aware of yourself and you're now. able to manage it. That's the that, thing. That's, well, that's yeah. where the overload mm -hmm. comes from, really, yep. is because, like, you don't understand or aware that it's happening, yep. and therefore you don't know how to manage it. Yeah, the main thing was, he said, like, I, for a long time, would argue with my mum when I had a breakdown because she would try and cotton wool me. Mm -hmm. I was trying to break out and drink my ass, <laughs> <laughs> as a typical teenager would. And I, I would swear at her quite a lot, and my mum hates swearing, even if it's by accident, she doesn't like it. And it took me a long time to realise that 
when I call her a, a bitch over the phone, <laughs> I have to apologise for that, even if I'm in an episode. It, me being in, a, in an episode gives me no excuse to treat someone in such a way, let alone my mum. Responsibility um, for yeah, your actions. Exactly, and, it's, and that's the, the key thing, because he said you're, you're finding awareness for yourself, but also responsibility in terms of it's you and you've got to deal with it, but also it, you have the repercussions of, of the mistakes you made, whether they're impulsive mistakes through what I have as a borderline or just general mistakes as a human. And like with my mum, it, it made me realise that actually like my the way I am has to be accepted, mm -hmm. but I also have to accept fault for my decisions that I make in and out of an episode. Yeah. And that was a massive turning point for me in terms of realizing, not just for me also, but that other people should have respect for me as a person. Yeah. And if they can't give me that respect and they don't understand that I deserve that respect in any capacity, then I, I shouldn't give them my energy. Time. Exactly, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, yeah. it's so valuable. After, after 10 years of, of well, let's say eight years of being very depressed. Now my time is so valuable because I didn't see myself making 18. I really didn't see myself making eight, uh, 21. Here I am at 25 and I had a lovely breakdown at Christmas because I was like, I'm actually 25. Like, <laughs> what am I doing? Yeah, this, this wasn't on the plan. Yeah. Like, this shouldn't be here right now. Um, but it, it, it gave me it's a lot. To, yeah, it gave me a lot to realise though that I've got so much to be thankful for now. But also, I, I, I started speaking only about borderline about two or three years ago. Oh, no, we're in 23 now. Uh, so, what, five years ago I started speaking about it? And when I came out, it was literally, I, I felt like I was, you know, coming out. And it was, it was crazy because it was a weight lifted off my shoulders to think that I don't have to explain myself anymore because... Or hide or, yeah, or mask. Because on social media... I am, I, I call myself borderline bikini girl. That might change because I might have outgrown my category, but um, <laughs> I am borderline bikini girl and I'm proud of it. And I, I, I have nothing not to be proud of. And people might look at my account and think, oh my God, she's mentally ill. Yes, I am mentally ill and I'm proud of it. That's amazing. And we need to share that because I think that from my experience of coming out with borderline five years into my journey, I met two people in the first five years that had borderline since my diagnosis i can assure you i've had probably 20 come in my dm saying they've just been diagnosed and then on top of that i've got about three or four friends who were very close to me who've been diagnosed wow and if they didn't know me they wouldn't have known about borderline it's uh, that's i i i'm speechless <laughs> because it's crazy... so interesting because mm -hmm. it's 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 therefore a further awareness and yep. understanding like yep. it's not just us being allowed to be ourselves and like not have to mask or anything yep. like that but it's actually allowing other people to understand themselves as well. well yep and for me like the main thing was it's not a handbook but I'm lucky that I've been through the worst of it I, not the worst of what borderline can be at all but in terms of my my journey and my path yeah, yeah, yeah I went through the worst of it for three or four years and I did everything you could have done I self-harmed I overdosed <laughs> I drank myself to death almost I tried drugs I you know partied and did everything I could and it didn't work which was great but also I, I I had the hangovers and the day afters of all of those events and I've I've learned what I needed to do to actually get back on track and mm -hmm. also what works for me might not work for someone else but I've 100%. heard what, what works for other people so whether it's medication or therapy I know in a sense which route would, might be best for someone to try or for instance if if a doctor said to them try antidepressants because the GP says antidepressants I'll say to that person 
maybe perhaps suggest mood stabilizers because for someone with borderline a mood stabilizer is actually what we should be prescribed as opposed to an antidepressant interesting because the antidepressant has the um side effects of suicide a lot like suicidal thoughts yeah a lot there's more. a lot of there's a lot of side effects yeah, but there's so much them, science so. with borderline because it's a obviously mental health is the brain regardless but with having i can't remember which way around we've got something enlarged which is why our emotions are, are higher right. um but because of those differences it's a lot more complicated than just taking a pill and masking and, it yeah 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 you yeah. know yeah. which is where the gym came in for me because i didn't want to medicate like everyone else did it wasn't what worked for me i tried therapy but i couldn't get up at 9 a.m because that's what they wanted me to do and i was like i'm not doing it so i gave up and then i found the gym and then the gym really saved my life. That's wow. that's where things took off, definitely. So what would you say the gym's done for you then? I, I mean, obviously, yeah, it's an, immense, an immense amount. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I was always kind of skinny. So on a physical side, I didn't actually realise, but I was almost anorexic. I was BMI of, I think, 14, 15. It was 13 at the time, I think, that was, that was anorexic. Um, so what happened was, is when the depression kicked in, and the parents divorced and whatever, I just stopped eating as, as a whole. When mm. I got attacked, I didn't eat at all for about two or three months. And at five foot seven, I was about 45 kilos, which is about seven stone. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I thought I was fine. And everyone else said, oh, you look fine. Like, you know, you look great. I wish I could look like you. You're all skinny. Realistically, I, little did they know I was very ill. Wow. Um, and if I'd carried on that way, it would have put me in hospital probably. Yeah. Um, and it got to a point where I started noticing that people were bigger and I was very, very small. And it was when I noticed that my wrist was so small, I was like, I actually need to start eating. So I just started to eat more protein off the back of like some research. And then I went to the gym, did the atypical thing of being a cardio bunny at first. And then <laughs> realised that's going to get me nowhere. So went and got a PT for a couple of block sessions done that and then the rest was history i just started weight training from january 2017 and I was that was. like the first introduction because obviously i like the only way that i got into the gym was i went with someone that knew exactly yeah. what they were yeah. doing otherwise so, like you walk into a gym it's yeah. so intimidating it's so i went to uh, just a leisure center at first to do just basic like basic card would get a, i think i must have been what like seven sixteen i get a day pass for like four quid and i was quite happy with that um but i was just doing the cardio stuff and then i looked around i was like wait there's a weight section and I was like, I need to do that, but I'm not walking in there and looking like an idiot. <laughs> so I ended up paying quite a lot of money for it, but I got a PT at Pure Gym. And uh, that's that's when I started learning things. But even then, I, don't, I didn't realise at the time because I was so inexperienced, but I was actually doing the same thing with him every week. I didn't have a programme or a plan. And that, this is when bodybuilding come into play because... I'd sort of learned the basics of, of squats and deadlifts, mm -hmm. but then I wanted to do upper body and like yeah. legs and stuff like that. So I ended up doing about a year of just solo on my own. And I was doing the same thing every time I went in, got quite strong on my own, but not like amazingly. And that's when I saw this, this gym in Croydon. And I was like, Do you know what? I actually want to go there. It, it looks really interesting, but it's scary because it's a bodybuilders gym. Yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. people on gear, big beefy <laughs> guys, like, I might not fit in so then I got a PT went there and that's when I learned a lot and that's when I realized that actually this could be something that helps me massively like the mental health that I had prior to going to the gym wasn't too bad like prior to weightlifting it wasn't too bad it had settled a bit but I still didn't have anything to grip onto your purpose yep. yeah, yeah, and with, yeah with borderline you have an addictive personality like it's really hard not to get addicted to anything um, 
but with the gym the the endorphins they they don't lie when they say you get like a rush of endorphins yeah, because yeah. I was going to the gym at 10 o'clock at night leaving at midnight and feeling like it's 8 a.m. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it's the adrenaline yeah, almost, isn't it? Yeah, it just felt, yeah I, do, I, I totally I totally agree. Yeah. It's just like it's it's revitalizing really, yeah. isn't it? It's it, it actually doesn't make you feel more tired. It makes you feel yeah. more alive yeah. and awake. Yeah, and it well exactly that though, and it made me realize and it was so it was so rewarding because I would go in there thinking I'm not going to do anything today like I'm not going to do well and then the weights would either move the same as last week or get better and it's like I'm actually doing something good here like I'm achieving something You're exactly and where I left school so early I've got no GCSEs so I felt like a failure in my life which was great um and I was just like this is something that's actually making me feel really good and, and aside from all the bad choices I'd made in the past of like the drinking and the drugs and as much as I had a good time with that at times, not all the time, but like when I went out to certain places, there were certain events that I'll remember for the rest of my life mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. and memories and stuff. But like in terms of excelling me forward in recovery and being positive and not as much as those times were a positive memory, realistically, they are very negative. I was self-harming and I was probably trying to kill myself subconsciously. Um, but the gym is completely different. Like I was very shy as a kid. I was sort of outcasted, I would say in school. Um, not like on purpose, but just I was very academic and I didn't really have much of a voice. And then the gym, even though I was on my own, I, because I learned to love myself mm-hmm. and that's where the journey of loving myself began because I saw my body changing. And I was like, I've always wanted what I look like now. So where can I go with it? Mm-hmm. And then got to a point where I was a bit too fat. So I was like, I might actually have to diet here. And I was like, because I was in a bodybuilding gym, this is where the whole idea of you should do a show. And well, actually, I wanted to be a powerlifter. Right. And then I was like, actually, I don't want to break my back. Trying to lift 200 <laughs> kilos or yeah. something. So I then was like, you know what? Bodybuilding can work. And with bodybuilding, though, comes massive discipline. So yeah, I wasn't I really in routine with gym. It was sort of as and when I felt like it yeah. a few times a week. But then with bodybuilding, you've got to get your meals in. You've got yeah. to get your water right. There's you've a lot got of preparation to do your there. plan, you know, fit everything around, get your sleep in all at the same time. And as a borderline, I don't like to sleep. I'm an insomniac yeah. at heart. Um, so it was very interesting to actually go into that world but then once I was in it I was knee deep in it and I'm I'll be honest I'll probably never come out I said it in my mini doc I will bodybuild at 50 if I have to like and 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 I think finding your purpose and finding your calling is so important to then realize what is serving you and what doesn't yeah so I think a lot of what I've been going through recently is certainly like like you I was into the alcohol drugs and uh, there have been times where there have been amazing experiences but you then have to realise, is that serving me? Is, yep. it, is that right now going to benefit me? And if I have been diagnosed with depression, if I do have P- PTSD, if I do have borderline personality yeah. disorder, how is that going to mess me up? Exactly, how, yeah. how, how is that not only going to mess up my head but from taking it and then the yeah. aftermath, but throwing me off my routine? And also for me, like the, what I realised massively was the longevity. So the longevity of not just the high in the moment, mm-hmm. but how long realistically can you keep keep that sort of a lifestyle up for? The the funding of drugs is not cheap. Yeah. <laughs> it's not cheap. <laughs> um, but no, but but even down from that to like travelling to run away from my problems and travelling to this event, that event, buying the tickets and this and it's like the money that I was putting into it, if I actually put that money into supplements, which I now do, for instance like a nice vegan protein, which is actually quite nice, <laughs> that is the same as a night out. Yeah you know it's self-development for the benefit of yourself rather than 
and it's and and again it's it's more long term yeah. gains rather than short term enjoyment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and that that yeah that's been a very important lesson to yeah. learn and a very difficult one. I must yeah, add as well. It's not, <laughs> very it's not easy. One. It's like for me, I I actually went sober, so I stopped drinking. I think it must have been twenty seventeen. Wow. I stopped drinking then, and I actually only broke sobriety in twenty twenty one. And I lockdown. wasn't, yeah, I wasn't meant to break it, but it happened. And then obviously we came out of lockdown about six months later, I went out with a friend for a night out and I actually got very drunk and it was very fun. And it, it's made me realize though, that I, I can actually handle my drinking now. So before I was a very heavy drinker to the point of making myself sick every single time religiously because I drank so much liquid mm. like spirit on its own. And I was like, I'm literally 17, 18 and an alcoholic. Like it was not good, but it happened. And I was lucky that I had my dad to support me and like look after me. Amazing. But the thing was, is that it, it was never going to work. Like you can, ma let's be honest, like you can mask how you feel and what someone does to you or what something does to you. But if you're, if you don't fix the problem, you're never gonna feel okay, and it's actually gonna, gonna fester. Mm -hmm. it, it will always, it will always be there. And it, and this has always been said with therapists that I've been involved with, psychiatrists, everyone, that facing your problems head on yep. is the scariest thing yep. to do. But the thing that will benefit you the most. Yeah, 100%, 100%. So um, I was bullied from year four, first of all, for having glasses and then just being academic. But I never really loved myself. And I was searching, after my attack, I, I, didn't, I didn't go out for about a year, I think it was. I, I started going out after about nine months to a friend's house. And then after a few months of doing that, I actually went out again into public. And I would not be on my own for a long time. But then when I started to meet people, because of Borderline, you might understand in terms of that we have high expectations. Like we love so, we feel so hard. So we love so hard. So we mm. love to give to people. We love to, you know, treat Definitely. people how we want to be treated and they won't return that. Yeah. And I kept thinking, what's wrong with me? And like, why am I, why am I feeling like this? Why is this person making me feel like this? And I realized that actually, and it was after my first boyfriend, you know, he split up with me after a year and a half. And I'm like, what the hell do I do now? Like, why have you left me? You said you love me. And he was like, you need to work on yourself. Like that was actually one of the things he said to me after a few months. He's like, you need to go and love yourself. Like you, you, you feel so little for yourself mm. that it was never going to work because you're so insecure. And, and it actually so often happens that you find that because someone can't love themselves, they have to try and keep someone around exactly. next to them. Yep. To You're constantly chasing. Yeah. And I find that... It's a, it's a similar thing I've seen in some friends in, in domestic abuse relationships where they are constantly chasing their partner and realistically that partner isn't actually looking after them in yeah. any way, shape or form. And I realised that with myself though is that I would be chasing things, whether it was drugs, uh, the high of being a rave, um, you know, guys and relationships, even friends. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if I'm chasing that, that thing because that's what makes me happy, what am I going to do if that thing isn't there? Isn't there, yeah. I learned that with my first boyfriend. Then sadly in lockdown, I lost my best mate of seven years and I was absolutely heartbroken. I mean, I, this is at this point, I've been in recovery for two years. I've learned bodybuilding helps me. I've learned about my food and, you know, I'm at a healthy weight. I, I physically couldn't eat for six weeks. Really? Yeah. So I actually, luckily, I only lost, I think, about four or five kilos, but I actually 
didn't eat for the first four and then I had a piece of toast every day and that was one piece of toast that's all I could stomach but even in that moment and this is another thing about about the borderline feelings I experienced grief from very very small things and people would say it's so you're overreacting and stuff but they don't understand I lost my cousin at eight years old and my cousin was like my brother and as an only child yeah of course that was a massive thing for me because I was like I'm gonna grow up with him he was only I think about six or seven years older than me whereas everyone else was about 15 right so he was the closest closest relationship yeah Yeah. and I thought you might be able to teach me about life more than my much Mm -hmm. older parents I mean there are things that siblings and stuff will teach you that your parents weren't exactly they used to teach me skateboarding used to teach me jiu-jitsu stuff like that but I I, so I went through grief at a very early age in terms of understanding that someone's there and then they're not and like you can still love that person even though they're not here yeah yeah. and that's so beautiful when I lost it is it's it's a real blessing in disguise because when I lost Carlo I was absolutely heartbroken but I was like you know what the the one thing you can think of is he won't be in trouble anymore you know (laughs) well because he was always in trouble like you know you have to kind of put your head to to rest in terms of like what's happened has happened you can't do anything about it but also like for me, the main issue was just the shock. I used to see him literally once a week for seven years, minimum once a week, if not two, three times a week. We'd just meet up for a coffee, chill. He'd take me to the station if I needed to, something like that. And that, to me, was real love. Mm-hmm. And he also, when I broke up with my first boyfriend, he was the one there and he said, you need to sort your shit out. Like, pull your pants up and go get yourself out there. Like, you know, learn to be on your own. Like, it's not yeah, that hard. Think, yeah, being on like learning to love yourself is mm-hmm. one of probably the most important things yeah. for mental health. Exactly, yeah. For mental health as yeah. a whole. And it's like when you're chasing, when you're constantly chasing, in a, in this world, in this day and age, in this society, everyone is chasing money. Everyone is chasing money, better living. Status, high, image, Exactly, yeah. higher shit. And realistically, I see so many people where they're, they're chasing constantly, they don't seem to enjoy anything. Yeah, no, well then, so, they're so focused on an outcome or a goal that they skip the entire yeah. journey. They don't want to enjoy the yeah. they don't want to enjoy the journey or the yeah. road. They just want to be there, and that's why they feel so unfulfilled when yeah. they get to that exactly. point because and they, they don't feel like they reflect. missed it. Yep, they've missed something. Like for instance, in prep, there was a lot that I'm I didn't even miss out because I didn't have a lot of social life compared to what I do now. And that was 2019. This was like pre-COVID. But you realise when you go through prep that there's a lot you miss out on. But in the bodybuilding world, there is your atypical hardcore bodybuilder that will have head down, get on with everything, you know, have all their meals. They'll miss all the social life. Yeah. Then there's what I would like to say me, which is half in, half out. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the ones that sort of it's a lifestyle, but it's not a competitive thing. Mm-hmm. They'll constantly, you know, miss their meals because they'd rather go out on their friends or whatever. Because for me, when I when I started bodybuilding, I said to myself, because I, I, I witnessed a lot of different things. I was like, Do you know what? I've been through so much in my life. I am not capable of giving my entire life to bodybuilding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm an insomniac for one. I'm <laughs> impulsive for another. But, um, <laughs> the impulsivity like, is massive. It's so in horrible, life, but... <laughs> yeah. It was like last week when I was sick and I've got so much stuff going on. Yes, I ordered an, an Ando's. Like, it's not that bad, <laughs> but it's not in my plan. Um, you know, I had some days of training as well to rest. But it's like, I, I said to myself, I'm a human first and foremost, yeah. a bodybuilder second. Like, bodybuilding saved my life, yes, but I want to enjoy my life. Yeah, yeah. And after so long of being, like, under a dark cloud and constantly feeling so bad, the main thing is, like, Im- improving however I feel. And I've been through some bad stages. Like, last year, there was a time where I went through a really tough time in a friendship group, and I was like, I feel like I'm in school again, and I'm not in school. What the fuck am I doing? And... 
it it made me realize that it it all led back to that one thing of loving yourself Mm -hmm. and if i hadn't grasped that years ago when that situation happened last year i could have very much been like i'm gonna throw the towel in you know and you go back into that mindset of suicide because it's it's a blanket of of safety in terms of like once it's done it's done you don't have to you don't have to to deal with anything else people don't understand that i think suicide is so prevalent because of the fact that when you look at what the actual act is, you are finally ending all the hurt and pain that you feel. It's not that you're escaping it, you are ending it be all and end all, you know? And I, that, that, that yeah. in, in, especially in that mind, mind frame and, and mindset, it's, that is the only way out. Yeah. Like that, that, when you, you don't love yourself, you you're not good yeah. enough, the world isn't helping you, nothing can help you. Like you get so stuck in that mindset of there's no way out but this. But then when even I realised, even if I sit at home and I'm on my own, if I'm happy and I'm comfortable and I make myself laugh by watching shit on YouTube or, you know, random Disney movies or whatever, like, as long as I'm okay myself in my little world. That's that's all that matters. Exactly. And I think that I've also realised that in society, there are two sides of society. There's society that understands me and there's the, the society that doesn't. The society that doesn't, I've noticed a lot of those people, they aren't, they aren't that in tune with themselves. Mm-hmm. They're not in tune with spirituality. And by that, I don't mean necessarily about spirits, but in terms of your spirit, your energy, yeah. protecting your energy, what you feed with your energy, whether that's your food, your environment, you know, your friends. There's so much so more. Important. And I think that that's where a lot of people could work on just a little part of themselves whether it's inward, like how they are inwards and, or and outwards. And the trouble is, as much as you show someone, and I've been saying this yes. saying so often. You can't help someone who won't help themselves. Yeah. You can't help someone who you won't help themselves. You can take the horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Yep. It's so you can tell that. someone that they need to work on themselves as much as you yep. like. It, I learned that. Ultimately, yep. it's down to them. Yep. So I went through my own stuff, and then I had a friend who was in an abusive relationship, and I told her over and over, leave him, stop. Like She was trying to kill herself every few weeks sometimes. I was running all the way to North London on a tube, with no signal by the time I got off they'd sorted everything out but when I was back back here she was so upset and I remember saying to her like you need to get out of this you need to get out of this you need to get out of this she got out of it she then got into another thing with someone else very similar and I said what are you doing and then I realized I'm putting all this energy into someone who won't listen to me and I wasn't speaking from experience but I was speaking from a place of care and love and and evidently seeing that something's wrong and that's the the nail on the head for me. It was like, you can't help someone who won't help themselves. And I also had to take that for myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I can't sit there and moan and complain about things if I'm then going to either A, ignore advice, or at least not try it, B, not try and figure it out for myself, or C, remove myself from the situation. Mm. You know, whether it would be a job, um, a friend, again, a friendship group, an environment, if it's not healthy for me, like my recent job, I'm gone. Yeah. If, if it got to a point where I'm not valued or recognised as doing my best and I, I feel like I'm not doing enough because of what other people are making me feel like, even though I'm doing my absolute best and I'm doing my job as I should be, then, you know, I'm going to leave mm. because my mental health is more important. Exactly. 100%. You know? So... I think, yeah, I think that's such a perfect perfect thing to end on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, so before we go, uh, just the last thing we like to do is if there is one particular mindful technique or thing that you do to help be mindful, stay present, what would that be? Hmm. 
I think I think it's it's so simple, but it's something I really struggle with. But breathing, like sometimes I would be running around, like I'll train and then I'll go straight on my shift with no break in between, and I wouldn't have a moment to breathe until I got home, which would have been twelve hours later by the time it's finished. <laughs> and I'm like, I need to, like I would be so worn out. And it's like if I'd just taken five minutes between training and work to recoup, keep, yeah, and get myself back in a state of like okay, we're cool, then, you know, it's better. But, like, I've noticed the days that I don't think about breathing or, like, how I'm even breathing myself. Like, I've noticed there's times that I genuinely don't actually breathe. I'm so, like, anxious. I'm just, like, wow. tight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if I'd taken a second to be, like, relax, you know, take a breath. Yeah, step back. Yeah, and look back on it and then I'd be like, okay, I'm, I'm better than I, you know, and, and recognising when you're doing better than you were. Like, me last year compared to now so much has happened but I know for a fact that I would be handling things a lot better now than I was last year self-reflection amazing definitely thank, thank you, you so, so much, much. thank you so oh man <laughs> and thank you all for watching and listening and um, we'll see you next time on Sally's Open Conversation goodbye <laughs>